Sponsorship time, ladies and gents. We're brought to you once again by Four Links. What exactly is Four Links? I realised my previous ad was a little convoluted, as passionate as it might have been. Um, what is Four Links? Four Links is a multi-course golf membership that uses a precise engineered point system, flexible enough for any lifestyle. Members gain access to a growing list of golf courses exclusive video content and unique unique experiences with just one monthly fee giving you the option and variety to play wherever you want in the four links roster that covers nevada california and arizona um does four links require a long-term commitment you ask are they are these guys just keep you in for like three years and you know and, and still leave your money no each bill cycle, month to month, renews every 30 days. You can cancel or pause your account at any time. They're good guys. They're nice people. Um, and how do Falling's points work exactly? Well, you use them to pay for your tee times. Depending on what plan you select, um, i.e. depending on how much money you pay per month, determines how many points you get. You get a certain amount of points each month. Each plan is a different cost per point. No money is ever exchanged at the golf course, and green and car fees are always included. Perfectly social distancing, weird time, motherfuckers. Um, and I also need to alert you and push in the direction um, of Falling's new fantasy platform, the new way to enjoy the PJ Tour, um, where you play head-to-head matches, you pay challenge matches, there's all sorts of matches. You pick your winners. Fallings give you a great breakdown of uh, of each player and their chances for each week and the course and the tournament. And myself uh, and Sam Kesson, the COO of Fallings, uh, discuss it in very much, uh, very much detail um, on Tour Talk on a weekly basis to give you guys the best chance to earn points to play by playing fantasy golf. Guys, go check them out. Amazing company, Fallings.com. Back to the motherfucking podcast. And, uh, you know, I think Tiger and JT mic'd up will be fine. Yeah, they, they, I like I like I like those two, I like their sort of chemistry together. Um, and I think I think I think it's a good choice of Justin Rose and Rory as well. Justin Rose is usually pretty good um, for the media, uh, but I, I can't I can't see those two getting a sniff on a Tiger design course when JT is playing the way he is, and Tiger just has to be solid for one round. I kind of feel like Team USA have got this one in the bag. Yeah, and I kind of feel like the golf course suits Tiger. Like, <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but he, he designed you know, it. I mean, he, yeah, he should know it. <laughs> but even still, you know, I feel like uh, he designed it to be pretty wide open, uh, you know, not terribly demanding off the tee, which certainly suits his game. So we'll see, but uh, it'll be cool. To, a, little, you, a little Tuesday fun. Yeah, man. Have you seen, have you seen photos of the course? Uh, I have. It looks beautiful. It looks epic. I mean, that whole epic. resort. Yeah, that whole resort at Big Cedar that Johnny Morris built it looks better every day. Is it? I, I mean, I mean yeah. Of, Go ahead. That top of the rock par three course that they have there looks awesome. Oh god, yeah, and the uh, the, 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 the driving range just looks like something out of a fantasy land. Like it's ridiculous. I know. That's the one that had like the crazy sinkhole, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, um, and, and I guess it, it's it's in the Ozarks, right? So. It's obviously yeah. gained gained some popularity with with obviously the the, the, the TV show. Um, it seems to be like on point. It, you know, it, 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 Tiger's come back. He's designed this course. It's in the Ozarks. It's fucking beautiful. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if that rises to the number one destination golf resort in America pretty pretty fast. <laughs> it's gonna ha- it's gonna have a hard time beating Band and Dunes just because of the water. But uh, yeah, that's I, true. I think it's definitely gonna be up there. You know, and the more courses they keep building. 
you know, especially at, at this quality, I think it's only going to get more interesting to to consumers and uh, make Branson, Missouri, of all places, more of a golf destination than <laughs> I certainly ever would have thought. How's um in, in terms of your in terms of your destination golf and your, and your bucket list golf? What's like what's up there for you that's been in the back of your mind for a, you know for a little while now, and you just haven't quite got around to it, or too expensive, etc. You know. I, Ah, that's a good question. Um, I haven't been up to Cabot, and that looks pretty cool. I think that's a trek, isn't it? Up to Cabot, up to um, that's the east coast of Canada, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like Nova Scotia. Uh, you have to like fly into Halifax, and then it's a couple hours from there, I think. Uh, but it looks amazing. I mean, just the, the property that they have looks incredible. Sand Valley, obviously, is another one that everyone seems to be raving about. I haven't seen that one yet. Uh, so I would put that one up there. How about you? Um, well, I'm three and a half hours from the home of golf itself, um, Drive. So, I mean, it, it's got it's got to be St. Andrews. Just, I mean, look, in terms of the old course, and I guess it's uh, quality as a golf course, I think there are probably better courses to to be played, right? And more spectacular golf course to be played. But I'm not sure there's a more sort of pertinent bucket list golf course than the than the home of golf itself, right? Yeah, I agree with that. And you just know how. I mean, you know, probably every five years, give or take, there's an open championship there, and how much fun is watching every one of those opens if you've seen the place already. You know, exactly. You get the picture on. You get picture on the bridge, all that sort of stuff. My having said that, my two of my friends just played Turnbury last weekend. I, I we we couldn't get the dates line for me to go as well, but um, they said the the Turnbury course was was after the championship course was was they said it was out this world good. Yeah, it's an amazing piece of land, and I think uh, I think some of the work that they did to it to bring the water uh, a little bit more into focus and and make it a little bit more of a uh, integral part of the golf course, it looks amazing. Yeah, and and you've got that lighthouse as well, that stunning lighthouse on the property. It's um, yeah, it, it looks unreal. I think I think Trump's course up in Aberdeen as well is meant to be out this world. Um, look, I, I I don't really know much about U.S. politics, but Trump does his golf courses pretty spectacularly doesn't he <laughs> yeah i'll say that for sure you know i, I think sometimes uh it borders into the overly ostentatious but especially <laughs> some of his u.s yeah especially some of his u.s courses there's a little bit of that in there but i mm -hmm. think uh especially on the on the two uk properties that he has uh you know like the land did not suit itself towards building a $25 million waterfall the way that some of the parkland golf courses out here <laughs> suited that sort of a thing. And so I think uh, it has a little bit more of a traditional vibe to it uh, while maintaining that, that importance of uh, the aesthetics of the place. So I, I agree with you that uh, politics aside, uh, you, you know, you have to look at his golf portfolio and say he's done a relatively good job. Yeah. Well, what's, well, what's the uh, Trump's LA course like? Um, it's got Trump LA, right? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's on a, it, it, you're staring at the water all day. It's, it's right on the ocean. Uh, you know, if you catch a nice day weather wise, it's a gorgeous place to be. The golf course itself is a little tight. Uh, I think as far as like acreage on the land that they really kind of squeezed 18 holes in there. And so the, the holes are kind of like terraced on top of each other. So it makes it really hard to hit fairways out there. So, but if you're putting the ball in the fairway, it's a, a 
a really fun golf course. It's got a lot of dramatic features, as you could expect with Donald Trump golf course. Uh, obviously, like the land itself is, is dramatic in its own right. It's still, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely one of the higher quality golf experiences in LA, no question about it. Is it, um, is, is it on the Falling Troster? Yes. It is. Cool. Mm-hmm. Nice. Did not know that. Um, it, it's weird. It, like, it, Fallings have been, like, I guess, you know, in, in the scheme of the golf industry, being one of the, I guess, the, you know, the smaller sort of tea time operate if i know it's not quite that but um you know you got you got some big competitors it, it, you've seen have sort of captivated that west coast market pretty pretty well yeah i definitely think that the way our program works for golf course operators uh lends itself to being uh to skewing towards some of the higher end facilities i think that a lot of those golf courses they price themselves out of a pretty wide range of golfers and so they're comfortable through kind of an opaque network like us offering some better rates to bring in some new faces that maybe couldn't see it at the normal price, but mm. at a discounted rate that's available exclusively to four links members that's priced in points. that's not publicly visible. You know, some of those discounts, I think higher APR golf courses are able to run through us and do it in a way that doesn't compromise their ability to get full freight from other people. Mm. And so I think we've seen a lot of success with some higher end golf courses just because of the nature of the model that we have that, uh, you know, it allows them to select the rates of their choice. It allows them to run discounts in ways that aren't terribly public. Uh, you know, we don't really take commission. We don't, uh, you know, we don't, uh, take like barter or anything like that so it's certainly uh as far as like the risk to a higher apr golf course it, there's not a ton of it you cannot really given up much so i think uh that kind of control and, and course friendly approach that we've taken has uh, proven to be popular among some of those better facilities yeah and it's, it's almost like from a customer standpoint as well like if, if, if i'm joining like a like a um like a multi-course membership or whatever usually well certainly this side of the pun pond the connotations are that your uh that your options to play good golf courses are few and far between and that if they're just average golf courses that have opted in uh because they want more footfall it wouldn't usually be sort of synonymous with playing some like real bucket list level golf um so it, it's it's unreal man have you have you have you sort of um have you and danny sat down and started looking at other states now i know it's obviously in the plans but um yeah, yeah, you're playing yeah, definitely. to yeah. you know, I think we're uh, really the way we're trying to go about doing that is we're trying to create a partnership with uh, outside company that has inventory in markets that we're not in yeah. so that we can kind of scale a little bit faster. I think that, uh, you know, it, we've got a relatively small team. And so trying to open up a new market is going to involve a lot of a lot of groundwork. And so I think to try to do that sort of one course at a time takes a lot of time and so we're trying to see if there are you know ways through maybe management company relationships or you know like broader strategic partnerships that we can do that a little bit faster but in the absence of that yeah we're definitely starting to look at okay what's next yeah it's it's interesting because like you know i've obviously we've all seen it in the golf industry but um being back in the northeast of england where I guess golf is a, it's pretty popular and it's more popular than it is in the Netherlands. Like I'm really seeing firsthand, like physically just how much golf is, is actually thriving at the moment. I think, I've, I think I've played five rounds in the last eight days, eight or nine days. Um, oh, and gosh. the courses are, are just, are just like, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't say the course was like 
rammed. I, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not like struggling to get round in three and a half hours. It's just more that it, you feel like there's, it's booming. Like I talk to the pros, like everywhere is up by fifty plus members. Footfalls better. The clubhouses, even though the social distancing measures are atmospheric, there's people in there again. Whereas like three, four years ago, man, you go to my local course and. You know, like there'd be like three people in the bar afterwards, tops, and it was just like it felt a bit deprived. And you know, most courses in the area generally, unless it was a high-end golf course, like say Close House, where they have the British Masters, for example, um, were generally struggling. Um, so I guess it, it's uh, it's it's amazing for us, right, that um, that the market's gone the way it's gone. Um, we're just fort- in a fortuitous yeah, you know, position. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. You know, I think I, I don't know that necessarily everybody recognizes right away when it happened. But COVID is, has really been, in, in many ways, kind of a, a boon for the golf industry because it's eliminated a lot of the competition that golf faces as far as how people are going to spend their leisure time. I think that people, because they're spending more time around the house uh, on a day-to-day basis, that when the weekends come around, that they're eager to get out and, and spend some time outside. You know, And I think that... Uh, Golf obviously well suits social distancing. It's uh, a game played by four people at a time across individual holes that are hundreds of yards in length and width. And so I think certainly that, uh, you know, the the combination of, of the safety component as well as the elimination of some of the competition for leisure time, you know, and, and, and additionally, the less of a need to shuttle your kids around, you know, that, that there aren't a lot of play dates going on. There aren't a lot of, uh, you know, those kind of things that would take parents that would, that would require parents time, you know, now I think can be managed in a way that allow parents to play more even, even if they have children. So I think just, you know, from a a standpoint of time and competition and, and obviously safety that it's been kind of a perfect storm for the golf business. Yeah, man, it's uh, it, it, it really, really has. I, th- I think obviously when it, when when COVID first, I guess happened, um, lockdown start. You know, golf was in a if you, very precarious spot. If you can remember back as far as as far as March, like people were in the golf industry specifically were were really worried because they were struggling anyway, right? And yeah, I remember even we were discussing like the even like the two months, three months of of lockdown could potentially be disastrous for clubs that have to shut the doors for good but the ones that have sort of survived that initial sort of downturn um are thriving now it's 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 it's, it's awesome to see um and yeah, i, th- and, and I think, one of the first sports back on on television as well yeah absolutely and i think too that uh you know i i, I think that phenomenon is true in a lot of different businesses not just golf that if you could survive this and come out the other side that you're, you, most people are going to end up in a better position at the other side than they were on the front end. Mm. The question is, can you survive the middle part of it? You know, yeah. I think a lot of golf courses, because of how quickly, you know, comparative to other businesses, how quickly golf was able to get back and going, that that interim period of time wasn't as damaging to golf courses as it was to other businesses. And so I think uh, you've seen them weather that better than most because they've had to weather less of it than most. Mm. No, absolutely, but it's uh, it's awesome to see, and then we're we're obviously getting more exhibition stuff as well, which I, I, I don't know what that's. Well, I, I know it's obviously, it obviously stemmed from the match, but um, I, I'm I'm super pumped to see uh to see that layout tonight and watch uh and watch them Tuesday night golf. Um, but 
I guess you know, go, going back to that small matter of, uh, of of major championships, the U.S. Open that did did not disappoint, did it? No, it was uh, it was definitely an amazing event. Uh, Wingfoot's such a cool golf course. I really enjoyed watching the the way that golf course played and that style of golf. I got to admit, uh, I, I am among the crotchety people uh, in the wake of watching what DeChambeau did. Are like, you? I, I'm. I'm a, okay. Yeah, oh yeah. I'm. I'm of the mind that I mean, like you know, DeChambeau and Wolf combined to hit five fairways on Saturday. And they shot a collective five under. Wolf shot five under, hitting two fairways. And Bryson DeChambeau shot even, hitting three fairways. And to my mind, that's not a U.S. Open. Like, that that part of the identity of the U.S. Open is you have to drive on the fairway. And what we saw from Bryson was a uh, uh, willingness to say, screw hitting the fairway. Like, I'd still rather be down there. And, and in the rough than back there in the fairway. And certainly his results bore out that that, was, that hypothesis was correct, that, hmm. that you were in a better spot the further down you were, even if you weren't in the fairway. And I think part of the identity of the U.S. Open in particular is that shorter in the fairway beats longer in the rough. Yeah. And that just simply was not so this week. It's, but it, it, it's, it's a strange one because, like, Although I'm thinking like, you know, the, the one irons into par fours, that year is, you know, long gone. At the same time, you can't really blame the likes of Wolf or DeChambeau because they like of of course hitting the ball far as an advantage. We've known that since Tiger came around and started bombing it. So players are gonna try and hit the ball further. That's that that, that that's a given. Um and the fact is if these guys with the nine iron well with eight iron um and wedges in the hand um, they can usually gouge that ball out the out the thick stuff pretty easily. So it's like it's like I'm not really sure where to form my opinion because yes, I'm a bit of a romantic and I want to see a traditional U.S. Open style player win. You look at Lee Westwood; he he had a he he played pretty well. Zach Johnson, we saw contend, which was a bit of a surprise, but not really when you understand who he is as a golfer. But like you know, I, I noticed Rory's comments. He was he was like, yeah, he's taking advantage of where the game's at. And that's good for him. You can't blame him. But you could tell he was a bit peeved as well. He, he mentioned the uh, he mentioned the way he sort of um, he sort of locks the locks the grip against his forearm and stuff. The putting's another another thing. And if you actually look at Bryson's driving, I think his accuracy and his distance wasn't he wasn't leading. Um, but I think strokes gained putting was his best stat all week. Um, and that brings into contention the the part of the game that hasn't really been discussed in the wake of all this distance. Um, is how you should be able to grip the putter. And uh, Bryson's long game has almost disguised um, that, which he's almost breaking the law in that sense. I, I, I didn't hear the, I didn't hear that grip get discussed once over the course of the US Open, and that to me is more of a contentious issue than him hit than him hitting the ball far. All he can do is, is his best and try and hit the ball as far as he can. Any tour player with the given opportunity to hit the ball further would. So I can't blame him for that. But then I look at his putting, I'm like, he's kind of breaking the law. He can definitely put other ways. Um, so yeah, but my mind sways more towards having an issue with the way he puts and the way he drives the golf ball. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't blame him. You know, he took the golf course that was presented to him, played it as best he could, and obviously did so extremely effectively. And I don't I don't find fault in no. his approach or anything like that. But I do think that the the stewards of the game and the people who set up these golf courses for championship events 
uh, may need to do some thinking about about how to change the way they go about doing that in order to restore kind of the balance of shot values that that they may think is appropriate. What know? do we do though? Like, right what, now, what can be done? This is my idea. Uh, the USGA already does it. They just need to rotate at 90 degrees. They have the concept of graduated rough, but they do it horizontally. And they say, okay, like X amount of yards from off of the fairway will be this level cut. Then when you get into, you know, 10 yards or eight yards or whatever, outside of that line, now there's another cut. And the premise of it is, okay, we want to make sure that shots that miss the fairway by a little bit aren't punished as much shots that miss the fairway by a lot. I would take that premise and rotate it 90 degrees and say the further down there it is, the thicker the rough is. So that if you want to be the guy that smashes at 375, that's fine. But the rough at 375 is worse than the rough at 275. And so you have to, as a long hitter, make an assessment of risk and say, okay, am I willing to risk a horrible lie up there where I probably can't play at the green in exchange trying to get that length because right now the, the cost i mean in the u.s open the cost of missing the fairway was not high enough you know and, and so obviously in the balance between you know like someone someone put it i forget who put it in a good way you know they said that golf is about two things it's about distance and direction and right now way too much of an emphasis is on the distance part of that equation and a lot less emphasis mm-hmm. on it is on the direction part of it, you know? Yeah. So I think if you grew the rough out at, at, if you made it so that the longer the drive, the, the more risk you were taking on, you know, then, then somebody who hits the ball a mile, you know, there's a strategic trade-off that they have to make and, and, a, and a risk reward component that just didn't seem to exist. This yeah. Week. Yeah. I, I, I'd argue as well that we, that we need to look at pin placements, um, firmer greens. And the one thing that doesn't get discussed at all is is more out-of-bounds areas. Like, uh, it happens, it happens, it, it's weird, right? It seems to happen to me on nearly every golf, every golf course I play. I miss the ball left to right. There's, there's some out-of-bounds. There's a hazard. There's, I'm dropping, I'm hitting three off the tee. Um, on tour, it seems that they can drive the ball into the 11th fairway from the 8th tee and yeah, it, it ends up in an all-right position and they can, they can play from there. I like to see more white stakes. Um, and I'd like to see less ball finders, volunteers on these holes who find the golf balls for them. Because that's the other thing, like when, when, we, when we play as amateurs, we don't have the, the privilege of, uh, well, I guess the thousands of people watching, but also, especially now, uh, we don't have marshals on, the, on, on each and every hole marking our golf ball for us. Um, I'd like to see more people who drive the ball poorly hitting three off the tee. Yeah, I think that, like that drove me crazy on Sunday when they were talking about Harris English and how he lost that ball. And made it double. Yeah. And they talked about how unlucky it was. And I was like, like, no, I'm like, I'm like, listen, you want to know where you're not going to lose the ball in the middle of the fucking fairway. You know, nobody lost the ball in the fairway all week. So like, yeah, I'm sorry that, that you, the professional hit a screaming pull off the first hole and have to look for it. Like the rest of us would, you know? Yeah. Absolutely, I, I found that to be maddening that they described that as like a as a unfortunate break, you know, and not just the uh, like predictable consequence of hitting a wild tee shot. Yeah, yeah, like uh, I don't see why we can't just put a bunch of white stakes in the ground to uh, to separate the holes. Like I'm sure, I'm sure that would cause a, a that that would be apparently enough for for wayward driving, surely. Yeah, and I definitely think too. Like you saw this at Memorial with Bryson, that uh, 
because of the recoverability of errant drives that he didn't price at wing foot for driving the ball poorly at times. Mm. And that at a golf course like Memorial, where there were a lot more like kind of unplayable areas that you may need to see. I mean, you may need golf courses that just have more hazards that are absolute and not recoverable. Loads of bushes and trees, loads of foliage, not even trees. We don't even want the option of the ball hitting a branch and coming out on the fairway. We want it to dive in there and never be seen again. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I just think generally from the standpoint of, uh, like the entertainment value of telecast itself that I found, I found watching Bryson's style to be boring, to be honest with you, because it just felt like it, it felt like there was never a lot of risk involved. Like the, the, the soul of the game is the, is the dogfight of risk and reward, you know, and, and the excitement of taking on, and that's what makes the 12th at Augusta so amazing. Mm. You can fire at that Sunday flag, but you know the consequences of making a mistake there. You know, and so the question is how, how much do you want to take on and, and what kind of line are you going to take? Like that's the, that's the excitement of watching golf to me is, is that fist fight between risk and reward. And when the risk is not that high, it makes watching the reward not that impressive. That it's like, yeah. well, you know, like if like kudos to Bryson for being able to hit at 380, but if if at 380 he missed, he's not paying for it. Then how impressed how impressed am I supposed to be? Like, hmm. yeah, it, exactly. I, I would like the USGA to to look at themselves more because I think they fall into the trap of of you know having the US uh, Open uh, identity is this uh, is obviously is a is a very sort of. Um, well, it depends which way you look at it, but let's go for high-scoring event where, where where players are shooting mainly over par. Um, they've used the rough as their only line of defense. It's like, oh, look at the state of this rough at this U.S. Open. I get it; it's tougher, but like that seems to be their only their only play. Like, uh, yes, I know they can. I know with the green systems, they can they can draw out the greens, but the focus always seems to be on the rough. So I do think the onus is on the USGA and governing bodies to look at how they can approach it as well, instead of just shitting on shitting on the player or shitting on technology because there's too much money in the in the equipment side of things for 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 manufacturers to shy away from uh, to shy away from you know making clubs that, that hit the ball further because that's what everyone wants um i don't know what you can do about a golf ball i don't know enough about the technology of a golf ball uh, but that gets discussed quite often right but then you know it seems like the margins are too fine to where you know if you're reducing the distance that these golf balls are going uh, how much feel are you are you adjusting as well and those balls have what what's what been what's been rates you adjusting etc so i don't know enough about that side of the game but i think the usga could be more creative in how they make their setups tougher I agree with that completely. And I also think, to be honest, that the USGA has gotten bullied a little bit in recent years. And rather than standing up to it, that they've kind of kowtowed to it. And I think that's sad. That like, you saw that sa- – I mean, like, the, the the golf course did not firm up, despite the fact that it barely rained. I'm not even sure if it did rain Thursday night. There was very little rain all week. And the the greens were not firm until maybe Sunday. And even Sunday, it was like – it, it still wasn't like, you know, you go back yeah. to that 2010 U.S. Open at Pebble, people are landing wedges on the front third of the greens to try to get them to stop on the back third. I think the USGA had, had kind of coming into Wingfoot knew how tough a golf course that is. 
and they were so afraid of it getting, you know, and they did this, and I think they did Pebble Beach too. They dumped a ton of water on it early in the week under the theory that, hey, look, we can, uh, like, you know, if there's too much water on it, no one's going to complain. But if there's not enough water on it and it gets, you know, like way too baked out firm and fast, this place might turn into a torture chamber and then everyone might be complaining like they did at Shinnecock again. Yeah, and I just think they're scared of that afraid. Shinnecock. They're definitely scared of what happened at Shinnecock. They got so much backlash off that of golfers coming off and saying, that's not golf, blah, blah, blah. Like that that really seemed to, to scare them, I think. And it, it's been evident. And um, yeah, I, I think, like you mentioned before, just look at the look at the scoring on Thursday. It was actually pretty low. Across, I think it was like 30 plays in the park. That was a joke. You know, that was a joke on Thursday, how, how easy that was. You know, like for, for a golf course that's that difficult, and it is a very difficult golf course, you looked at some of those hole locations and they felt like pro-am pins, you know, like middle of the greens, in the bottoms of bowls. You know, you saw very little risk that needed to be taken on in order to, to achieve great reward uh, you know of making birdies and i thought it was just a, a shame between the softness of the greens and the uh you know kind of conservative approach they took to the whole locations that you ended up with something that to my mind was not a, like thursday that was not a championship test you know and i think that you certainly heard you know whispers of how mad the super at wingfoot was about how the usga set it up thursday and i don't blame him for feeling that way at all yeah, hundred percent. What do you um? What do you think of of Matthew Wolf's performance overall? Um, I think that the golf course setup lent itself well to the way he played. He played in a fashion that was not dissimilar to the way Bryson played. I'm gonna hit driver all day long. I'm gonna accept that not all of them are gonna be in the fairway, and I'm gonna take my licks as they come and try to make birdies where I can. Uh. So I think, you know, I, I, I think that he played well for a lot of the week, but I mean, I never felt like, you know, he hit, to, to shoot 65 in a U.S. Open hitting two plays like that, that to me is, I don't know that that's ever happened in the history of the U.S. Open. I would be pretty surprised if it did. And I think it just kind of showed that that golf course setup was vulnerable to this style of play. And, and so I think to my mind, Matthew Wolf's kind of an example of, like how how effective that style was i mean you saw like people like dj like dj didn't seem to play well and he still finished in the top 10 like rory didn't seem to, to put it together for four days and he still finished in the top 10 there were a couple guys that were your like standard u.s open style guys that that played well but i think at the end of the day like because of the fronts of the greens you know and this is another area where like from a golf course perspective uh like the venues that you choose could could change kind of the importance of driving the ball in the fairway but because all those greens were open in front and there weren't very many fronting hazards that you didn't have you could bounce the ball in from the rough Mm. and so I think guys like Matthew Wolf and and Bryson DeChambeau when they did miss fairways it was not they never they almost never were in a situation where they couldn't do the green and that they couldn't put a ball on the green from where they were so I yeah. mean I think as far as how Matthew Wolf played, you know, he played he played the golf course the way that Bryson did and had a lot of success doing it. 
just not quite as much success as Bryson did, probably owing to the fact he didn't putt as well as Bryson. Yeah, I, I, he, obviously, he obviously played well, right? He's 21 years old, and he was uh, you know leading the U.S. Open after 54 holes, so fair play to him. But uh, I knew he'd ball it, like I really did. Uh, he, he came into that final round far too cocky. Far too cocky. I, I think I think he sta- I think in one of his like pre pre uh, round statements, he said something like, "I'm just going to go out there and rip dog." Like I I it, I get it. It's funny, but you, you do not say that like the, uh, you know the morning or the or the or the, or the day before uh, final round at the, the U.S. Open. He was taking phone calls on the range. I I just feel like his him in like the George Gankis setup just a little bit fucking showy. Like I yeah I I. Yeah, I, I, I I don't know. I just I didn't really like the way he went on. But he's 21, so I can't blame the fucking guy. And he's obviously done amazingly well to get the way he's got. But I just didn't like the way he approached that final round. Yeah, I don't disagree with you there. And I also I, I was not a huge fan of the way he handled the loss either. Like there was a lot of talk from him about uh, bad luck, and I I I am always. Uh, I am always annoyed by the guy who doesn't own up to when he loses. Like he lost by six. He didn't lose because of bad luck. You know, he lost because the other guy was better and he wasn't good enough, you know? And and like, here's the quote I was looking for. Uh, Is there one thing that happened? This was the question. Was there one thing that happened on the back nine uh, where you felt like things started to fall apart? And he's like, well, was it the break on 10 when I was standing in the bunker or like the not left bounce on 12 and then the second shot that got pin high on 12 and spun back down the slope? I mean, it's just bad breaks. You can't do anything about it. and It just wasn't meant to be. Oh, oh really? You can't do anything about it. Like the, the break on 10 hit the ball 10 feet further to the right. You know, when you, when you say there's nothing you can do about it, that's patently false. When he talks about the break on 12, hit the ball two yards farther. I, you know, I, yeah. Your number by a yard and a half. I get bad breaks, but the the, the 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 fact of the matter is the golf ball doesn't do what you don't do to the golf ball. <laughs> it it does it as a direct right. reaction of your of your action, and it reacts with the ground after it lands. And you, as a golfer, meant to weigh up what that ground looks like and how that ball's meant to inter- interact with what part of the ground to get the best result possible. That's what's so fucking good about golf is how humbling and is it's a direct consequence of how you've played that shot. I get like when people call bad breaks, we've all been there, like that's a shit break, but it, I guess it happens, right? But the fact is the course is the course and you are the golfer and you hit the ball how you hit the ball and the way and, and you know how the ball ends up after that is entirely on you. <laughs> entirely on and his examples and his examples of what the bad breaks were did not were not what my definition of bad break would be like if you want to say okay i hit a wedge shot that hit the fly stick and went yeah in water all right bad break you know fair enough or i hit a drive that hit a sprinkler head and careened into the bunker or whatever okay bad break like you hit the ball where you wanted to hit the ball and it and it had a, a a once in a gazillion you know reaction or whatever like so be it that's that, those are bad breaks, but to say like oh I hit it left and something bad happened, you know like well don't hit it left you know like yeah I didn't uh, hit it far enough and something bad happened well hit it one yard further yeah exactly man like I'm I I, I guess I, I'm kind of annoyed with myself since starting the podcast I've become more of a sit on the fence kind of guy because. I guess what I'm saying is, is is public, right? So naturally that 
I guess that's happened. But I, I, I will say this. I, I think the setup this week at Wingfoot completely glorified Matthew Wolfe's ability as a golfer. No doubt he's done well. No doubt he's a good competitor with his first PGA Tour um, event. But I just don't fucking think he's that good. I'm sorry. Yeah, and I, I think too that uh, I just think that the the there's an imbalance in the game of golf currently that skews in favor of distance. I I think the decline of a Jordan Spieth is is kind of a a, a example of that too, that he simply doesn't hit like he doesn't hit the ball far enough to where when he hits it offline he gets away with it the way that Bryson 75 yards further up is getting away with it. You know, even Tiger, like, you know, Tiger's long still, but he's not like their level of long. Like he's one step, you know, he's kind of like, I want to say there's like the top 25 guys distance wise. Tiger's probably in the next 25. He's long enough. Yeah. Yeah. He's long enough, but he's not like, he's not in that crazy long. And so when Tiger missed fairways, even though he didn't miss him by that much, he was far enough back that that the rough was a problem for him. That missing fairways cost him, you know. But had he been missing fairways 50 yards further up, it would have cost him less. And I'm not sure that there's a I – just, I just patently don't think that it should ever be easier to play rough further up than it should be to play from the fairway further back. You know, like if you want to say at regular tour events, that's fine. Okay. But at like a U.S. Open – I just think that that's a, a, a imbalance that needs to be rectified by setup or by technology. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. I, I think the I think the other thing that we need to note about the U.S. Open this week as well is like, look, the, I think the, the the governing boys did an incredible job to get golf back on the TVs, and we we have to be thankful for that, right? Because other sports have had to wait so much so much longer. But um, Part of what makes winning a major championship difficult is the fucking crowd uh, and the noise and yeah, the I pressure. And I, and I feel like that was lost and that was visible. What can you do? Nothing. Absolutely. But, um, but then again, I think the real quality players, and I, I, I don't get me wrong, I do, I do hold the Chambeau in that quality. But like he, he's won plenty of tournaments when there has been crowds and uh, I think he will win big tournaments when the crowds are back. Um, I just think if you think Matthew Wolf looked good, um, you look, uh, look at the U.S. Open, put some crowds in there. I don't even think he gets to where he, where he got to. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really, really miss fucking crowds. <laughs> I think it's my point. Like, that the, 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 the back line on majors, like, the, the, the crowds almost make that. Um, they make the scene. They make the spectacle almost. Um, but, look, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We can't really do anything about that. I'm looking forward to back-to-back Augusta majors. That should be fun. Maybe, maybe fans get back next April. Maybe not. Who knows? Um, and I'm actually, look, I was a bit apprehensive of the Tory Pines US Open next year. Yes, it's Tiger's sort of one of Tiger's favorite courses, the most successful golf courses. I'm generally not a fan of it as a US Open uh, host. Me neither. Having said that, um, I do think that's a golf course where they can look to implement different things to penalize wayward driving where you can't perhaps in a wing foot where you've just got the rough, right? They've got, they've, you know, you can put a bunch of, uh, bunch of white stakes in, it gets fucking windy, uh, you can firm those greens out like no one's, no man's business, and you can do what you said, look at maybe more, uh, you know, look at bigger and thicker rough um, further, towards the, further towards the green. I do think there's more levels of creativity um, and more room for play on that golf course. Yeah, and you know, and I'll say this too, that 
the USGA talked about how the, 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 there was the first cut, second cut, and third cut. And the second cut was like four inches, and the third cut was like six. Old school U.S. Open, six was the standard. And that was like 25 years ago. If you look at the swing speeds that guys have now and their ability to get and the clubs that they're hitting that rough, six inch rough today is probably what three inch rough was 25 years ago as yeah. far as it's like strategic impact on the game. So like, you know, and the open championship, I think really shows this to you that the, the fescue and the hay, that is a, is a genuine hazard for poor driving. And, yeah. you, and if you start, if you start flipping it into that shit, you might get away with one or two, but but when you get into like three, you're gonna have a, a hard time somewhere. Yeah, you're fu- you you're know? fucked. And, yeah, yeah, and and so I think the USGA has to be willing to say, like, listen, this is a U.S. Open, and the rough is gonna be fucking outrageous, and and you better put that ball in the fairway, period. And, yeah. And if you don't like it, we don't give a shit. That's the part the USGA needs to find. Like, I, I found myself for for almost all four days saying like the usga needs to find its balls again you know that there was an era there where the usga didn't give a shit how much the players complained about it in fact you could almost argue that there was a time when they loved hearing you know and that then those days are over the usga now is afraid of the bad press they're afraid of becoming the story and so you get a lot of these like neutered course setups i mean the 18th hole at wingfoot there's a level location in the all the way in the back left corner it's over it's like just one tier up from where they had the pin on Saturday and they didn't use it. Why? Because I think they were afraid people were going to complain last hole U S open, you know, tricky pin. Some people might say it's a joke pin or whatever, you know, there's a little shelf up there though. That's a really cool hole location that they never used all week, you know, and there were a lot of hole locations that when you would look at the greens, you would go, how come they never put the pin up on that shelf? How come they never put the pin up on, yeah. on this one? You know, and, and I think they need to stop being concerned with whether people are going to bitch about it and just say, look, we recognize that the setup at the U.S. Open is, is brutally difficult. And and part of the challenge of this championship is can you conquer a brutally difficult setup? And if you're going to be one of those people that's 28 over par and complaining about how Mickey Mouse the golf course is, well, you lost. You know, yeah. like, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you obviously didn't have what it took to, to survive, you know, this this test and and, you know, better luck next year. Instead, it's a lot of, you know, fear of, of becoming the story of, of losing the golf course of this, that or the other thing that they've had two opens at Shinnecock. They got, you know, roasted by and, it, and it's affected their DNA kind of ever since. You yeah. Know? And it's un- as far as I'm concerned, it's unfortunate, you know, and it's taking away some of the character of that championship in my mind. Yeah, I, I'd agree. It's, it's almost like the mirroring sort of modern society's like sort of um, fear of fear of sort of, uh, of, of offending people. <laughs> like stop it. Like you set the rules as the governing body. Uh, the players then adhere to that. I know you've got to be empathetic of like who plays your game, but the U S open is about fucking brutally hard golf. Um, uh, a golf course I fucking loved as a, as a as a major championship venue was was Port Rush Royal Port Rush. If you were offline mm. at Port Rush, not only did you have bad lies, you you, you were like you, like what if you if you're off course at Wingfoot, you always had a flat stance, right? Like at Port mm-hmm. Rush, you see guys who are like in all sorts of contorted positions with the hands in all different spots on the shaft. I mean, look, just look at Rory's first round. He was completely wayward, right? And he was, like, on the side of banks, in bushes. Like, that's what I loved about Port Rush so much. I just don't think... 
I, I think we could create more, I guess, dramatic setups for the US Open, use more dramatic golf courses. And maybe maybe the rotor that we use needs looking at. Maybe we need maybe we need to consider new new golf courses that have severe like have cliff faces, have severe banks, have have tricky lies. Um because like we, I we need to do something. <laughs> I I agree with that and I think too that that a big fallacy that exists among a lot of decision makers at at the highest levels of the championship golf is that uh like we want to see birdies. Uh, at a US Open, I want it to be one hell of a feat to make a fucking bird. Like I want it to take a shot and a half to do that. Yeah. You know, and so and so I don't I, I and I think I think fans love watching the profession you know maybe not every week but i think that especially for a big event like that i i think that that we love to see like the climb everest quality uh you know to to a a, a really difficult championship test you know and it's been not enough of those as of late aaron hills was kind of a joke you know, I, I, those fairways were 60 yards wide or whatever. Shinnecock, they got slapped around for. So, of course, the pebble was soft and easy. And to, this, by, by, this by the way, it, Shinnecock, last round, Tommy Fleetwood shot 62. <laughs> that doesn't happen right. at US Open. So, they obviously eased it up after the complaint. Right. You know, and so I think uh, I would just like to see. I, I, I hope a lot of people talked about Bryson's win as kind of a. a, a a soul searching moment for the game itself about whether or not raw distance, we were just going to let take over what professional golf looks like. Mm. I don't mind the idea that there's an advantage the longer that you hit it, but I mind the idea that it's an advantage to hit it longer, irrespective of where you hit it. Mm. That part bothers me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think this should all be placed on DeChambeau's shoulders. Like I mentioned before, he's just taken advantage of where the games are. And he played very fucking well and held his nerve very well and came back from a losing position on the final round of a major championship. He did what he had to do to win, to win it, to, to win the event. That, that, that's fine. All he can do is what's in his arsenal to win golf tournaments. The USGA needs to be more accountable um, I need to be more creative, quite frankly, because it's just like the run out of ideas. It's like, oh, how thick can we make the rough and how and how and how quick can we make the greens? There doesn't seem to be any other like any other creativity in there at all. You know, and to play devil's advocate, uh, I'll say this: that the USGA would probably, if they were on this podcast, Mike Davis and John Bodenheimer would tell you, "Hey, one guy broke par." So, like, you know. If you're talking about our setup was too easy, one guy shot under par. That having been said, the board, the top 10 up there, it was mostly the Bombers. And that the thing that the U.S. Open portends to do, it didn't do. It didn't, ma- it didn't make you do what a U.S. Open is supposed to make you do to win. And yeah. so, yeah, even though, like, there was only one guy that broke par, you know, that that – it shouldn't have been that style that was how to do it. That's yeah. my problem. Yeah, that like, yeah. I don't mind like the scoring itself. Like the golf course played very difficult, especially for people who don't hit it prodigious lengths. But it played so much easier. You know, it was a lot like, it, you know, it reminded me a lot. The whole thing reminded me a lot of Tiger's win in '97 at Augusta, where it was like, okay. This guy is is playing this golf course in a way 
that is neutering the shot values of the <laughs> golf course. And Augusta, to its credit, was like, okay, I need to do something to restore the shot values to, to what they're supposed to be so that the guy's not flipping wedges into the par fives and stuff. I mean, the ninth hole, there are two par fives on that golf course. The ninth hole, they play, the two guys in the final group played with a driver and a wedge. It's, uh, yeah, that's just... Yeah, so, and what I would what I would say to counter that, to, if the USJ was to say that to me, I'm I'm like, what do you think the next generation of golfers are going to be doing? Like, if 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 you don't sort of change now and change your identity, and maybe look at how you penalise wayward driving or how you approach people who are going to hit the ball further, because you need to get. If you think this generation of golfers hitting the ball far, wait till wait till seven years down the seven years down the line, and and every fucking every rookie on the fucking on the tours bombing the ball 350 360 plus because that's what's happening that is what is happening and that's what kids 13 14 50 year old kids now who are taking golf seriously as a career are going to be doing nothing but going to the gym and trying to hit the ball as far as humanly possible and the strategy of the golf courses is being lost in a lot of respects that yeah. uh whole locations that you're supposed to have to shape shots into now you just hit a moon ball nine iron and you can keep it close all it used to be okay i'm hitting a four iron and if i want any chance of getting this near the hole i have to land it right here i have to hit it this high i have to cut it this much i need it to land in this little three foot section so it takes that slope you know and i just think that uh i mean like the 13th hole i think that hole was 230 bryson had an eight iron I mean, it was a little downwind, sure. But, I mean, you know, I don't think that hole was designed to be played with an 8-iron. No, 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 not at all. And I, I think it's been represented in the shots we're seeing in and around the green as well. Like, how many chip and runs do you see? Bumping, how many 8-iron at the back of your stances do you see? You, you only ever see players like Tiger, like... Or you know, or players have been a bit who have been around on tour a bit longer, or indeed at the at the open champ at the open championship, um, hit those sorts of shots. It's bomb, and how much loft have you got in your hand uh, to get the ball to land as softly as possible? And you're probably going to be all right. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, I think I'll say this to return to Bryson specifically. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see how sustainable his approach is over a long period of time. Part of the narrative with Tiger Woods is that the way that he swings is going to cause trouble for his knees, his back, his this, his that. How, how long can DeChambeau take? Like, I mean, this guy's gained fucking like 40 pounds. You know, he gained like 40 pounds in three months <laughs> and he's swinging it and he's swinging it as hard as he fucking can pretty much every time. Like, you know, at, at at some point, I have a hard time buying that, like, the body is going to be able to do that for 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna take its toll. At the same time, sports science is improving. Uh, the way we understand the, the body is improving. Uh, methods of recovery are improving. So it's almost like, sure. yeah, that, 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 that could be an issue, but I feel like, with the science and technology, that's going to be less of an issue, especially with the way stem cell um, you know, treatments are going. Like pe- people are getting shoulder replacements in, at fifty, and they're saying they haven't had a, they're saying that they've got healthier shoulders or healthier joints than than a twenty-one year old. So, like, 
I, I agree we'll take it still, That's but I, ca- I kind yeah. of feel they're going to be able to rectify that. Look, if Tiger had the same back issues 20 years ago, we wouldn't be seeing him on tour again. But hey, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll fuse a few spinal cords together and, um, and he'll be back out winning, winning the Masters. Like, I kind of feel like science is going gonna, is gonna to dictate that. Um, yeah, I think you're probably right about that. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but look, it, it, it was a very entertaining US Open nonetheless. It was, I love watching Wingfoot on, on television. It's a very picturesque course, very well set up for cameras, I felt. Um, it, it brought up a lot of drama, a lot of talking points, which is always fun, right? Um, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't a one-man show. Like the, No one ran away with it. Um, I know Bryson sort of buried Wolf pretty early, and we, we, we saw winning from the sort of the... After we made that eagle, I think it was pretty evident who was going to win just in terms of boy language and, and how they were both playing. But it was an enjoyable US Open nonetheless, and we don't have to wait long. I was thinking, I was like, oh, fuck, we've got ages till the next one. But 6th of November, uh, it's, what, seven weeks away? <laughs> yeah, it's not far. And I also think it's really cool that uh, we're going to get Augusta twice in a row. You know, like two majors in a row are going to be the Masters. Probably never going to happen again in our lives. And it's it's also extremely cool. And I really am looking forward to uh, what does Augusta National look like uh, untouched, like with with no spectators. I think, like, especially because I feel pretty confident. I mean, I don't know. I felt this about the November one too, but uh, I feel pretty confident that come April that they will be able to have some spectators, even if it's not as many as they're used to. I'm going to see some Champions Tour events that have allowed spectators back, and I think Georgia, as far as states go, like I would put them probably ahead of most as far as their willingness to allow that. Mm -hmm. And so if this is going to be kind of the last major with no fans, which I'm hopeful that it will be, I think it's going to be an interesting opportunity to see Augusta in a different way that, than we've seen it for however many yeah. years. Yeah, it's a bummer. You love the galleries, like the atmosphere and all that's definitely a part of it. But I think if you're looking for kind of a, a positive, I'm just really curious to see what that property looks like with very with almost nobody on it. I've never seen it like that. Yeah, well, look at well, watching it in touch will bring a new sort of wave of enjoyment in, in itself. Um, and I think the aura and the mystique of Augusta National will be enough pressure for those players uh, going into the back stretch on, the, on that Sunday. It's still Augusta. It's still the Masters. It's still the most important major, probably. Um, so I think I think they'll feel the weight of it more than say a PJ Championship or a, or a US Open. Um, I'm excited to see how long distance gets on there because if there's a course I think set up in a way that defends against distance, I think Augusta is arguably one of them. Um, it'll be interesting to see for, for a whole sort of reasons. Makes you pay. Augusta, yeah, especially on the back nine, the runoff areas, the pin placements, yeah, the speed of the greens, the water hazards. Yeah, it's it and yeah, yeah, it, it's got it all. It, it's got that. It's got that perfect. I really want to go for that pin, but I probably shouldn't feel the whole way around. <laughs> yeah, and I also think too that uh, Augusta does not have what Wingfoot has, which is the ability to run the ball into the green. Uh, yes, from like when you're out of position, you know. And so I do think that uh, you will pay a little bit more. That that to me really was, you know, if if you were to point to any particular thing that made it so that Wingfoot didn't punish uh, wayward tee shots. It was that the rough wasn't long enough that you couldn't play at the green and the greens didn't have enough frontal defense so that if you were playing out of the rough that you couldn't bounce it up, you know? And so I think a course like Augusta national 
I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think in my head how many greens, like, can you really run the ball up? And it's like not really on one, two, not really on three, not on four, maybe kind of on five, not really on six, not really on seven, kind of on eight. You know, most of nine, no. Most of them, no. I would say probably 14 of the 18 greens, you're not going to get away with that at Augusta National. So I, I, I don't know. You know, but then again, you might see Bryson do shit like, you know, where he ends up having a hundred yards in the thirteen. Yeah, but, <laughs> but yeah, but 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 having having said that, like, the, the, there's no distance you can hit the ball that will, you know, that 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 will solve the problem of mm, should I hit a nine iron or a pitching wedge because the wind could gust me above those trees and there's about a six yard landing area. Like, it, it puts a premium. On, it really does put a premium on accuracy. Look at what happened when when, when Tiger went at last ride. Both Finau and Molnari stick the ball in the water on a short par three. I mean, yeah. I th- I, you know, when club selection and course management become the king uh, over, over distance, I feel Augusta. At least I'm at least I'm hoping that will remain remain the case. Um, because look, as you look at you look at Rory, I think fun fact, I think Rory actually outdrove uh, Bryson for average driving distance at the U.S. Open. He's been around. Uh, he, I mean, and he's been around Augusta long and, enough and hasn't won it. Yeah, so when you saw Wolf and Bryson both hit good ones on nine, Wolf's ball went further. Yeah, even though Bryson crushed his, you know, Matthew I Wolf hits the ball enough, a fucking long way. It's it's a nice big draw with his driver. I also yeah, and I also think that his ball flight is a lot more optimized for distance than uh, Deshambo's is. Like Deshambo's ball is kind of a moon ball, like it's big time carry. Yeah, uh, but when it lands, it doesn't run out. And as you saw, I mean, he might have landed it forty yards behind where Deshambo landed it, but by the time it was done running, it was ten yards ahead of where his was. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that 48-inch shaft does for his driver as well. Maybe, maybe that's something that could be used to, I guess, uh, to, 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 I guess, put a ceiling on, on how far you can hit the ball because it's sort of going to go into long driving mode, it feels like, which um, I don't know if we want to see. We want to see, we want to see those shafts bend around the player's ankles in the backswing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see how that looks, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm just such a fan of, of the artistry of the game that if it becomes about brute brute strength that i think you're going to lose a lot of what's golf so interesting to watch and i think you're also going to lose the ability to have stories like you know uh, tom watson at turnberry or greg norman the year before at burkdale like those were guys in their 50s that were hanging with the best players in the world Mm. because of their savvy you know, and, and that, that was one of the, that's a beautiful thing about the game of golf that I don't think you want to start making it so that that type of thing's never going to happen. Any, you know, I, I think you want to, you want to give more weight to craft than it seems like the game is giving right now. It's, it seems like right now that, that if you're not one of the 10 longest guys, your chances of, of being one of the 10 best guys is pretty slim. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll 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 see what happens. I I generally think it's a I think it's a USGA problem. I think it's a governing body problem, and I think it's a creativity issue. I think we need to look at what golf courses we're playing because it seems to be the same courses on um on the rotor. Um, I don't see any reason why we can't look further afield. The, the, the things like Port, like Port Rush, like I, I go back to it again, but what a beautiful, beautiful setup that was for a British Open. The RNA fucking killed it with that one. Um, I want to see more thought. I, I don't want to see the same. Maybe it's time just to break the mold a little bit in what courses we select to play. 
um, to give ourselves more opportunity of creating more more hazards for these players. But um, we'll we'll see. Um, and there's, uh, we, we're going to move on, I guess, because we've been we've been going for about about an hour now, and we haven't yet approached the hugely important topic that is the Corrales Championship this week. Um, I'll say, yeah, I'll say <laughs> this: but, uh, it does look like a beautiful place. It looks gorgeous. I mean, I saw Bo Hostler put a, put a video before it's sunset, and it looked absolutely magnificent. I'm sure I'll be flicking it on at some point over the weekend. But um, I'm not gonna lie. Let, let, let's go through the pa- the picks. There's not going to be too much to substantiate my picks this week. Um, mine, I will say mine that. Mine either. Let's go. Uh, group A. In, the weakest in Group what, A in history. <laughs> right, and what easily could be confused for Group F. Uh, Charlie Hoffman, Charles Howell, Johnny Vegas, Henrik Stenson, Graham McDowell, Pat Perez. I mean, Stenson's the best player of these six. I don't know how they talked him into playing this thing. <laughs> I, I, I think I think I'm going to go with Stenson because he 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 strikes. He's just the best player. Like. Quality player, yeah. Player, he's the he's the best player in the field. So I, I think I can't make a huge mistake picking him. But I'll tell you why Henrik Stenson, the defending champion. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah. Last year. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why Henrik Stenson is is playing that event because he's licking his lips at the easiest one point three million dollars he'll ever make if he wins. Um, that's some easy prize money right there. If you if you're a quality player like like Henrik Stenson, you you jumped on it. You jumped on your free NetJet sponsored plane to go and pick up another million dollar check. Thank you very much. Um, but my my my, my pick out Group A is going to be G Mac. He showed some moments of of old, some moments of brilliance at this week's uh, well last week's U.S. Open. He's a defending champ. It'll be a nice story for G Mac to say he defended on the PGA Tour. I know it's a bit of a shitty event, but um, I like the G Mac. Nice guy. He's getting my vote. Yeah, and he's got a lot, he's got good vibes here. I don't think that's a bad call. Group B: Luke List, Kevin Chapel, Mackenzie Hughes, Patrick Durst, Corey Connors, Sam Burns. I'll admit I couldn't pick Sam Burns out of a police lineup. He uh, is. It. He's. Well, it, it, who's. 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 Um. Who's Arnie's god's uh, grandson? Not Sam Burns. Um, oh, that. No. No, that's uh, Sam Saunders. Sam Saunders. That's that, that, that. That's who that is. Um. <laughs> I was. I was. I was. I was. I was going to go off. Off. Just off that. But um. I'm going to go <laughs> with Mackenzie Hughes. He's shown the most form this year. He's actually been up. He's been up there. Uh, my pick too. Yeah, and he played reasonably well last week. Uh. And he's been playing reasonably well the last few weeks, so I think he's a, he's not a bad choice. Group C, go on, give you this pick. All right, uh, you could easily be forgiven. For <laughs> it's it's two thousand and two. Aaron Badley, Bill Haas, Sean O'Hare, Ricky Barnes, Jonathan Bird, Chad Campbell. <laughs> uh, hey, Bonson played too bad the week before last. I know I'm going with Barnes for that reason that he was I, I think two weeks ago it was a similarly weak field and we had a similar grouping to this and he won that group so I'm gonna I'm gonna ride the so-called hot hand <laughs> and stick with Ricky Barnes. Fair play. I'm uh, I'm gonna go with Sean O'Hare. Um, uh, if you look at this guy's quality in two thirty show two thousand nine, I don't think anyone else other than maybe. Hmm. Trying to think of another player who's fallen off the end of a cliff quite as drastically as Sean O'Hare when you compare the talent to what they to what they to what they actually achieved. 
No, I, 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 th- I think Sean O'Hare wins that one. Um, just purely for his talent and the fact that he's still playing golf and probably thinks he's still got a shot at making a good career out of it again. I'm, I like his balls. I'm going Sean O'Hare. <laughs> Aaron Badley, Stack and Tilt just like ruined that guy. What, what Stack and Tilt? Uh, like, it, it's basically, you know, so, so there are the, those two teachers, I forget their names. I think I want to say Mike Bender and something. And their philosophy of the golf swing was that they felt that it was incorrect to transfer your weight to the right-hand side oh, God. on the yeah. way off the golf ball. And so the way that they – so they advocated their students, like, almost, like, uh, stacking their weight on the left side. And then instead of coming through, like, transferring the weight from right to left, that they're just, like, turning and tilting back. And none of those guys, like, like – Almost all of them had like short-term success and then fell completely apart. And you don't even hear about it anymore. Like that, that's how much out of favor that style of golf swing has become. And it certainly seemed to do a number on Aaron Badley's golf game. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Group, group D, here are some names you probably haven't heard in a while. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan Armour you have. He played pretty well this year. And in fact, he's probably my pick. But uh, – Daniel Chopra, remember that guy? I just about, just about. How about Carl Pedersen? I I oh I I I know Carl Pedersen. I I actually think he had a few good runs in like 2012, 2013. Only, Carl Pedersen. The only thing I I know about him is fat guy, long putter. That's all I know. <laughs> uh, Tommy Tugla. Oh no! Whenever you see him on the in the field, it's like it's tragic. I don't, I don't, I don't want to switch my TV on just in case I have to see Tommy Two Gloves teared up. And what what was the reason for that again? Is, is he another guy who gets beaten up by his wife? Ah, uh, I think you, <laughs> I know. Well, maybe. But oh no! Yeah, you had that charge against him. He had something. Uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> how shall I put this? Uh, Let's rape. just say he enjoyed. He apparently enjoyed <laughs> ladies of the night, if I recall correctly. Go on, Tommy Ganey, copying off his of his hero Tiger. I like it. <laughs> well, to, 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 to be fair, Tiger did a lot of other things, but I don't think he ever paid for it, or at least not, or at least, or at least not directly. He paid dearly for it, but not quite that way. Uh, uh, I don't really actually. Let's look up. I'm pretty sure the details of that story are funny. Tommy Ganey. This is going to be one of those search histories. Tommy Ganey sex. You want to do it. <laughs> oh, shock it was in Florida. Shock it was in Florida. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a funny website called A Florida Man. I think I've, I think pre- I've heard of this. You, oh, my God. You, you type in a day of the year. And a news story will pop up that begins, a Florida man, dot, dot, dot. And it's always something outrageous. <laughs> Fox Nalligate or whatever, yeah. Um, okay, let's say he was charged the with... The Polk specific... County Sheriff's mm. Office launched a six-day undercover investigation dubbed Operation Santa's Naughty List. It <laughs> led, led to more than 120 people facing prostitution or drug charges. And they have the... Police used online advertisements to arrange meetings between the suspects and the undercover detectives. Oh, he was wow. supposed to be tee off the next morning, but he didn't make it. 
It's a, yeah, I, I don't oh, know if we're reading the same no, article, but it says he didn't make it. The sheriff said he was a scratch. <laughs> what? No, like, fine. why do they have to try and like throw a golf put in for the fucking news? Like, <laughs> that's just a tough look. James Hahn, I only remember from the uh, from the Gangnam Style dance he did on the 16th green at Phoenix. Yeah, that's about the only thing I remember about him. And oh. Ben Crane is the slowest guy in the history of golf, so I'm certainly not picking him. I'm going with Ryan Armory. Played pretty well this year. Everyone else in that group is a total has-been. Um, I'm, I'm, Tom, Tommy Ganey, obviously, you know, let's just hope he doesn't have internet access. God only knows what he's going to get himself into down there. Well, at least he won't be leaving his fingerprints anywhere. Um, fair, fair play to the guy. It's a strong, strong strategy. Um I'm gonna have to copy a pick. Man, I could have done a humorous pick, but like I think that's one of the groups where it's uh, it's it's it, the odds are, f- are fairly stacked in Ryan Armour's favour. Um, group E. I uh, I I don't know that I'm gonna come close to pronouncing this correctly. Akshay Batia. Mm-hmm, I like it. Uh, Sepp Straka, Bo Hostler, Peter Uline, Doug Gim, Brandon Hagee. I this group is all uh like promising amateur careers is kind of the the unifying theme here. Sepp Strzok has played relatively well at times this year and has played kind of consistently the best out of all of these guys. Doug Gim's been kind of a disappointment. Peter Uline's been kind of a disappointment. Brandon Hagee doesn't play a lot. Uh, doesn't get into a lot of events. I think he's a, a Corn Ferry Tour guy that's getting the promotion this week. Uh, I think. Uh, I mean, the, the Akshay Bhatia, I, I, he could have a promising career in front of him, but he, I don't think he's played enough events yet where I really feel like that comfortable picking him. So I'm going to go with Seb Straka. Yeah, it's probably the most it's most obvious pick. Uh, the, the two guys that stand out for me are Pete Ulhein, who has been around for a while, had some success on the European Tour. Um, I feel like... Uh, I feel like he could he could feature this week. He's got enough experience, uh, more experience than the rest of that group. Bo Hostler, he's had a bit of a tragic two seasons where he showed a lot of promise. It seems like ever since he and Porter beat him in the was it the Valero Texas Open that that pulled to one, twenty seventeen twenty eighteen. I think he beat him in a playoff. Didn't seem to have been the same golfer since. What I will say, actually, Batia, he, he he did get a top ten at the Safeway Open. I think. Um, he is talked very well about. However, he must be the skinniest human being I've ever seen on a golf course. Um, I, I'm not sure he's got the. I'm not sure he's got the muscle to contend in a golf tournament. Um, having said that, you know there's no smoke without fire in the top ten already. In the Arsenal isn't bad at all, and I do like new players. I do like up and coming players. I like a new story. So, I'm actually Batty is going to going to get my vote. Um, it's unconvincing. Uh, but he's got a pretty pretty milky tempo, tempo about his golf swing. I like it. Um, guess my vote. That was a treat about this weekend at the U.S. Open. Was getting to watch uh, Louis Tyson a fair bit. Oh god, I that guy, that guy. Play. Oh my uh, word, that's an old school. Te- like if you see like you know VJ Singh, Ernie Els, Jim Furyk, Freddie. Cup, if you see all those guys warming up on the range, it's just nothing but tempo. Like the tempo of their golf swings is masterful. Like that's what's so enjoyable about watching the, the Champions Tour. They can't swing it as fast; they don't want to. But so they've got to rely on a really good tempo and rhythm. And um, Louis Eustace, and wow, does he carry that on bucket loads? And it's just like it looks like there's so little tension in his entire body. 
the club that mm. that it looks it looks rhythmic and and uh, like his hands and his arms are so soft through the ball, it just looks beautiful. You know, and I was pulling for him to try to, you know, on that front nine, it looked like he might get himself a sniff. But those two eagles at nine by uh, the two guys who were kind of leading the pack, that pretty much did it. And Group F: Kiradach, Appy Barnrad, Brandon Grace, Sangmoon Bay, Anirban Lahiri, CT Pan, Emiliano Grio. Ah. Uh, I am picking the barn rat just because I want to. The barn rat. Um, yes, I love the guy. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> honestly, I don't have any any logical explanation other than I just like this guy. I, 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 yeah. I think he, there's something about him that I. I want to root for him. Yeah. Okay. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I like it. Um, I I also like the Bon Ra. I think he's hilarious. I love how fat he is. I love how happy he always is. Uh, his ball striking's pretty pure. He's got a bit of flair about him. He's had previous success. It's a very good pick. Sang Moon Bay. He's had previous success in like twenty fifteen, maybe sixteen. Haven't really seen much of him recently. But I think you know you look at well, <laughs> poor bastard. I mean the the. South Korean military service requirement. Oh, that thing came at a pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, it came at a pretty rough time for Sang Moon Bay. I mean, this guy like three years ago was like main president's cup teams and was starting to like work himself into it. And then it was like, up, ah, he's got his dues, three year military commitment. Now he's back and he's not the same player he once was, and that just sucks. I feel for the guy. Yeah, you've got a feel for him. Um, I think CT Pan, Emmanuel Grio, and Brendan Grace are actually quite good pedigree golfers um they've all had Brandon success Grace before especially. yeah i'm, I'm gonna go with my uh go with my head over my heart on this one i'm gonna go brandon grace i think no i think I've, out of everyone in the um in all the groups bar maybe stenson um you know he's a guy who's featured in a lot of big tournaments over the last five years and i think he's he's got around i think he's got like five worldwide wins to his name on the european tour and and uh, the Sunshine Tour as well in South Africa. He's, he's, he's had a good career as Brandon Grace. He's, he's been the nearly man on a few, in a few majors, actually, as well. So um, he's, he's getting my vote. Have you seen the picture of the barn rat? Uh, like <laughs> the barn after rat. He hit the, after he hit the vape pen? No. Oh, boy. I mean, he, you know, like, I'm sure you've seen people have, like, the some of those vape pens where the amount of smoke it billows out is just outrageous. Yeah. There's a there's a great photo of the barn rat blowing out like a, a vape pen, you know, like smoke or whatever. And it is just, I mean, watching his like fat body blow out like an astonishing amount of smoke. Oh my god! Oh my god! Did you Google it? Oh my god! What the fuck? How great! How great is that <laughs> picture? Kirideck after barn rat. Plays golf so he can keep buying Yeezys and Ferraris is the name of the article. <laughs> I mean, just look, just have one look at that photo, and it's like I'm picking this guy. I don't care if he's not. I just am amused and must must reward that amusement. It's almost like I, I I'd love to play a round of golf with him. I, I kind of feel like he'd just be a, a, a right laugh the whole way around. He looks like I, I think he might even make my bucket list four ball. Imagine Kiridek with with fucking Jack Nicklaus and Tiger. It'd be like, yeah, everyone'd be like, what the, the fuck? <laughs> Love it. Um, 
Okay, cool. I'm, I'm, I've just picked the winning score of uh, of eighteen under as well. Ah, uh, that's probably a good guess. This golf course looks pretty. I will say. Ah, uh, you know, and you can think of, you can imagine for some of those guys, you know, like, hey, there, there are worse places to, you know, to go than the Dominican Republic for a, a beautiful event like this. So. You know, especially for a guy like Stenson, weak field, chance to win, mm-hmm. get some confidence back, uh, do it in a beautiful place. Plus, I bet I bet you there's a lot of, you know, of the Lucas Glover genre uh, on PGA Tour. I suspect that there's a fair amount of, uh, like, hey, you know, uh, why don't we play uh, the Dominican Republic one this year? I huh? like I'm sick of uh, – I'm not that interested in going to the John Deere Classic in Iowa. Uh, if you're heading down to Punta Cana, <laughs> I'm in for that, you know. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I'll, I'll be watching – for what it's worth, I will be sticking on. I'm a golf addict, so of course I'll be watching it, but not as intently, and I'll probably be finding other things to enjoy than the, uh, than the field. Um, but look, I'm it's, more uh, excited yeah. for the Payne's Valley Cup today. Yeah, I, I, I'm really looking forward to watching that this evening. Um, and I'm also looking forward uh, to this event being over because it's one event closer to the Masters in Tiger Woods' defence. But um, that's all for this week, Sam. Thanks so much again for your insights, bud. And I'll, uh, I'll catch you with me next week. Always a pleasure, buddy. Howdy, man. Bye-bye. <laughs>